Last time we were reading in Acts chapter 5, and we had seen the fate of Ananias and his wife Sapphira for lying to Peter and lying to God about the price of their land. And so let me, let me pick up in, uh, in verse 7 again of, of Acts chapter 5. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. So last time we read how, how uh, Ananias had sold his land for a certain price and then presented a portion of that money to Peter and said, I sold it for this, for this portion that I'm giving you. So he lied about the amount. And we know that he lied about the amount because Peter asked his wife in verse 8, did you sell it for such and such a price? So the, the wife was, was uh, working with her husband to lie to Peter, to lie to God. You know, I I have seen Christian couples and I've seen Christian couples together live a life that that really isn't upright in the sense of of their dealings with things. And from what I have seen, from what I've seen, generally it is the man who decides to do something wrong and then the woman will, will decide, okay, I'll go along with you in that. And what happens is the man, through convincing his wife to do this thing that, that isn't honest, that isn't upright, draws her into the sin, and it ends up then affecting the whole family. I think it is less common where the woman wants to go ahead and do something wrong, and then she convinces the man to do it. I think men are probably better at, at, at standing their ground to that. Although from the beginning, that's not necessarily the case. I mean, we certainly have the demonstration of Adam. But from what I have seen, that often a man can draw his wife into doing something wrong, and and I've seen it in financial wrong. It ends up affecting the whole family for many years to come. And what, what I want to say is that women don't have to go along with their husbands in this sort of thing. Women do not have to. And it is not a proper act of submission to think that you have to do this. In Ephesians chapter 5, there's this portion that people love to quote concerning marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. And, and, and we can even look there because I want to give women the ability to stand strong in marriage and to do what is right. And to be an encouragement to their husbands to do what is right. If you look in, in, in the Bible in verse 22, it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. 
And generally here in our Protestant Bibles, this is the beginning of a paragraph. And it says something like marriage is like marriage like Christ and the church. But this division here between verse 21 and 22 is not real. It is, it, it, is, it is fictitious division that is put there by the authors of our Bible, by the ones that, not, not the authors, by the compilers of our Bible, by the ones that publish it. But verse 21 is very much attached to verse 22. And it says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So within the marriage, there is being subject to one another. It is not wives be submitted to your husbands any more than it is husbands being submitted to their wives. It is a mutual submission. And one of the things that happens in the Protestant church, and I think unfortunately, is this, this pattern has gotten all wrong and, and women are, are beat into this place of, oh no, a good Christian wife wouldn't question her husband in these sort of things. No, a good Christian wife will stand for Christ. A good Christian wife would say, don't deceive with that money. Don't cheat on the family's income tax. A good Christian wife would put her hands on her hips and say, no, we're not doing that. And, you know, there's nothing that gets the attention of a married man more than his wife putting her hands on her hips. I mean, that, that means that you, you are about to uh, cross a line that's going to cost you dearly. It's much better to just give in because where you're about to go is going to be very costly. And it is a good thing that women do that. And, you know, men will, will sometimes quote 1 Corinthians 7, 4, that it says, A wife's body is not her own, but her husband's, and, her, and his body is not his own, but his wife's. But let me bring you back to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. And that is true what it says in 1 Corinthians about, about one does not have authority over himself, but the other has authority over them. But let me talk about what authority, what true biblical authority is in Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, verse 25. Jesus says this. But Jesus called to himself and said, called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to become first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So you see what true leadership, what scriptural Christian leadership is. It is doing what is best for the other. It is doing what is best for the other. It is not lording over it, one person over the other. It is doing what is best for the other. To keep your spouse from doing wrong is in the interest of the other. That is the best thing in the interest of the other. So if your spouse wants to cheat on income tax or cheat in the marriage or cheat and, and, and have you do things that, you, that uh, uh, you know are scripturally not right, take a stand against it. You serve Christ. What Sapphira's sin was is that she went along with her husband in this sin. If she had stood her ground and Peter was giving her a way out. He said, did you sell the land for such and such a price? And she says, yes, that was the price. 
And that was it. Judgment was then pronounced on her and she dropped dead. Now remember, we will probably not drop dead. And I've never known Christians to immediately drop dead because of their act of sin. But as we talked about last time, that sin does cause physical sickness. There are numerous examples of that, both in the Old and the New Testaments. It also causes great spiritual sickness upon a family. So what we see in this thing of, of Ananias and Sapphira is that Sapphira never should have gone along with her husband Ananias in this lot. And when Peter gave her a chance to expose this thing, she should have exposed it. That would have been the best thing. And remember that whoever wants to become great, you don't lord it over the other. That is Gentile. But Jesus says in his kingdom it's a different way. It's service to the other. That means when when one spouse wants to do something and the other doesn't particularly want to do it, often, you know, one spouse wants to go somewhere and the other spouse doesn't particularly like to do that, you yield to that because that is Christian to do that. You say, let's go there. If, if, you know, if you want to go and visit that place, you want to go see fireworks tonight. Okay, we'll go see fireworks. I don't particularly like fireworks. It hurts my ears or something. But I'll go for you. This is what Christian service is. It is service to the other. And it is not wives being submitted to your husbands without husbands being submitted to their wives also. And, and, uh, and actually, when there is a proper submission, and a proper submission in a marital relationship, it actually, you know, people see it and they say, you know, you do so much for these, this person, you do so much for that person, but they don't realize how much is being done on the other side. There is a yielding. There's a giving to one another. And it actually brings great peace in the home. All right, so we saw destruction there in the book of Acts chapter 5. Now let's, let's go on. In verse 5, verse 11 says, And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Well, duh, no doubt. I mean, they just saw two people drop dead for telling a lie to Peter. And how often do lies you out of our mouth. And can you imagine that you know that you're about to speak with a person that if there's a, a lie that comes out, you're going to drop dead? I mean, you kind of avoid that person then. Because there's so much trash that spews out of us, you just get scared. So what happens in every new dispensation, you see an extreme demonstration of miracles, you always then see the extreme demonstration of judgment as well. So this was a new period. It was the foundation of the church. We see this extreme judgment and we see the extreme demonstration of miracles. Verse 12, And at the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. Now remember, where is Solomon's portico? Solomon's portico is this place within the temple compound. So, the disciples, the Christians, those who love the Lord, are meeting in the Jewish temple area and teaching the people. So, their Judaism and working within the temple compound area and teaching is not a problem for them. Sometimes it bothers modern Christians that Jewish Christians, the Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, still celebrate, uh, uh, still celebrate certain holidays, still celebrate Hanukkah. It bothers them that way. It shouldn't bother Gentiles. 
I mean, it didn't, bother, it, it didn't affect these people. These people lived very much in light of their Judaism. They lived their Christianity within that. And some of the things that bother us sometimes really shouldn't bother us. Okay, um, verse 13. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. Well, again, nobody wanted to associate with the apostles after this. Because remember, one slip of the tongue. And you might be another Ananias and Sapphira. The young men might have another one to bury. And this was the job of young men in the church. They buried dead people. This was the first job, it says. It says the young men came in and carried out Ananias, and then the young men came in and carried out Sapphira, who was the young men. So what does this tell us? The job of young men in the church is to do things physical. You do that. I mean, you can't, you can't ask you know, a bunch of apostles to be burying people. You have the young men do it. You have young men do certain tasks, and this is, this is the period God has you in. And it is this service that gets you great blessing to have young men and women serving in the body of Christ. You know, I used to read the Old Testament and, and see that, you know, read about the temple and, and the tabernacle. And, I, and, and uh, sometimes the ca- it says the tabernacle and the temple were never properly cared for. And, you know, some king would come along and say, let's clean this place up. Let's get some carpenters in here and start building and, and, and fixing this place back up. And I thought, wouldn't it have been amazing? If there were a person that really loved the tabernacle, that really loved the temple so much that they were just always cleaning and dusting it and making it look nice, that is, the, in that place is where God dwelled. And God began to show my heart, if you do this for the body of Christ, I see it. You stack up blessings for the future. This is, this is your retirement portfolio. All right? When you, get, you retire and go to heaven. This is your portfolio. You stack up these enormous blessings at this age when you, without anybody telling you, come in and set stuff up. Come in and and wash the dishes and take care of the body of Christ and do things that nobody else knows about. I knew a kid, he used to come in and he would go into the church and he had the key and he would go into these places that the church owned and on weekends when nobody was around on Saturdays, And in the evenings, he would come in and he would move all the chairs. He would mop the floor. He would wax the floor and put all the chairs back. Nobody knew it. But this kid was doing it and he was just trying to just bless the body of Christ. And he was accruing things for the future. This future blessing. There are things that you can do now that have an effect. And you know what happens is, is kids have a tendency to grow up in a church and they, you know, they think that, you know, I've always come here since I was a little kid, what to do? But you pick up some task in a church and you do it faithfully, faithfully, faithfully. You are greatly blessed. What you want to do is you want to have tasks in the church so much so that if you miss the church service, you have to arrange for other people to fill in your role, because that's a very important function for you. You know, my, my two boys, I'm so delighted they're doing this. My one son is controlling the words in the, in, the, in the early service, and the other son is controlling the backgrounds, you know, electronically. And they love that, and they're taking it seriously. And this is something that I want them to learn to do. I'm excited about this, that they're doing that. And I want it so that when they leave this place, 
and go on to some other church, that they would be serving in the body of Christ in similar fashion without, without me as their father having to tell them, you know, you really ought to serve. That they'll just do that. When you do this for a campus group, for the body of Christ in any way, you serve, you will be greatly blessed. This is an act of service. And as we serve, you know what happens is God looks at that and He's he seated in heaven and He turns to His angels and He says, look at that kid. Look how he's serving. Angels go bless him a lot today. And make it so that this fine young lady over there who's serving in that church, make it so that they get together and they get married. Because I want them to both have a good spouse. He sets things up in our lives according to service. It says, the Bible says, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the entire earth to strongly support those whose heart is completely His. That means God is looking all over the earth to find somebody whose heart is His so that He could strongly support them. I'd love to be in His field of view doing something because I want His support. I want His strong support. And sometimes we, 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 we don't get involved in the things we ought to get involved in in the service to Christ and we miss out. We miss out. This is service to the Lord. And so it says that, that they were held, the apostles were held in high esteem. People were even afraid to associate with them because they realized God was moving so, so uh, strongly. Okay, so, so now look in, uh, um, in verse 14. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on any one of them. Also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were being healed. So, um, it says that their numbers kept on increasing. So we know from the Scriptures that on the first day, about 3,000 people were saved on the day of Pentecost. And then after they had healed up the, the uh, God had healed up the lame man, 5,000 people were healed. So that was 8,000. But it says that, that more and more were constantly added to their numbers. So the church was going, growing extremely rapidly. And there's problems that occur when a church grows rapidly. I mean, they're generally good problems to have. It's much better than the other way. But there are problems, and we're about to see some of those problems that occur when a church grows rapidly. But now again, we see this, this amazing ability of, of, of uh, gifts to come forth and of miracles to come forth. So much so that Peter didn't even have to lay his hand on a person. He didn't even have to pray for them. All he had to do was pass by, have his shadow go over the person, and they were healed. And it wasn't just a few that were healed. It says in verse 16, and they were all being healed. There were two sets of people. Some were afflicted with unclean spirits, so some had demonic activity in their life, and others uh, were healed of their afflictions. They were being healed, all of them, you don't see that today. 
Some people will have a gift of healing. There are people today that have a gift of healing. But not everybody who was brought to them is healed. That was not the case at this time. At this time, at the beginning of the church, at the beginning of a dispensation, the judgment is harder, the miracles are also greater. Just his shadow falls on them and they are healed. There is a similar thing that happens with Paul in that Paul could just give a handkerchief that he had wiped his forehead with, and they would take this handkerchief and put it on sick people, and they'd get healed. But we're seeing what's happening with Peter. But it's not just Peter, it's all the apostles, but this book, the book of Acts, tracks mainly two people. It tracks Peter, and it tracks Paul. That's, that's the intent of this book. There is, there is uh, uh, a, a Stephen, Stephen is the link between Peter and Paul, so it, 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 spends, it spends about a, a chapter and a half on, on Stephen. Alright, now verse 17. So all these great things are happening. Now look in verse 17. But the high priests rose up along with his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with je- jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go, stand and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they were returned, and they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely. And when we, it, it, quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors, but when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. Okay, so um, before it was was, uh, Peter and John were arrested and put in prison, put in jail, in the temple jail, along with the lame men. But now all twelve apostles are arrested. So you've got the eleven plus Matthias, the twelfth, and they're all arrested, and they're all put in, in, in jail. So remember, within the temple compound, there was a jail. We had discussed this previously. It says in verse 17, The high priest rose up along with all his associates. That is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. The first persecution came by the Sadducees. The temple guard, who was a Sadducee, the high priest and his family, who was Sadducees, not the Pharisees. The second persecution is again coming by the Sadducees, not the Pharisees. Although the Pharisees are going to be very much a part of of the third persecution. Here the Sadducees again are rising up. They're deeply concerned. What are they concerned about in verse 17? They were filled with jealousy. Well, why were they filled with jealousy? You've got 8,000 people in a few days, part of the church, and thousands more coming. And they're meeting in the temple compound area. That kind of gets you concerned, right? So at, at, at Westview, there's, there's another group of people starting to meet and kind of forming a church within the church. 
I mean, that kind of get you concerned. So this is getting them concerned. And they're becoming really jealous. And what are they jealous of? Well, they're certainly jealous of the crowds, but look at the power of God being poured out. These are a bunch of men who have no religious teaching. They are part of a group that was, that was started because of this man, Jesus. They had dealt with that central figure. And now these twelve are doing a lot more miracles than what Jesus did, in the sense that you got twelve of them doing these works, doing these miracles. And that's getting them concerned. Because they're the ones who are supposed to be running this show. And now everybody's coming to them. Coming to the, the apostles. And so they laid hands on them and they put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, said, Go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. And upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. All right, so let's take this a step at a time. Here they are, being used of the Lord, healing people, preaching the Word of God, and they get arrested. Now, that's a bummer. I mean, think about this. We know the outcome, so it's okay. But they didn't know the outcome of all of this. So here they are, teaching the things of God, and they get arrested. Imagine you're doing church in the park outside of Rice. And, you know, you're helping out these, these old people. Anybody here ever done church in the park? Okay. So you're helping out these, these people, who, these street people, and you've carried food from the, from the college to them, and you're teaching them and all these things. And all of a sudden, you know, a SWAT team moves in, and they grab you. And remember, when you're arrested, you're, you're, not, you're not treated well. It's a very humiliating experience. So, so the SWAT team comes in and you get thrown to the ground and your face is in the dirt while they put handcuffs on you. And you say, I'm, I'm just serving the Lord. Did you know that when things like this happen, you could become a little bit upset with God? That, hey, I was just serving God. And look what you've allowed to happen to me. My face is dirty. I've got handcuffs on. And you know what happens when you go to jail? You know, I worked in the prison system, and so I know that when you... They'll take your clothes off you, and they examine you to make sure there's nothing hidden in your body. I mean, it's a very humiliating experience. And I'm sure it was as humiliating, if not more so, back then. And then there's big guys with big rubber gloves on their, on, on their hands, take you by your hair and walk you to a cell. I mean, this is a humiliating experience. And that's often after you've been thrown in a shower to make sure that you don't have any lice on you. And so, and, and, and so it's a shower with special chemicals to, to kill the lice. It's a humiliating experience to go to jail. Why would God allow this? I mean, come on, I thought God's in charge. Why does God allow all this stuff to happen in my life? Well, to us, it doesn't look too bad looking at this because in the next verse, we see what the end is. But in our own life, we don't see the next verse. But God does. And this is why we question, God, how could you allow this to happen in my life? This is a natural response when we don't see what the next page says. This must have been going through some of their minds. They had never been, well, you know, Peter and John had been arrested before. 
So, you, you know, those are the two jailbirds among the twelve. But the other ten have never been arrested before. This is not a fun experience. And I'm sure they're not the only people in this jail. And so then, sometime during the night, we don't know how many hours. Maybe God let them stay in there for five hours. I mean, couldn't God have come earlier? I mean, there's things that happen in our lives. And it's not, you're not the first person that this kind of stuff has happened to. Whatever you go through, I guarantee you, you're not the first person. Lots of people on earth have suffered, you know, the pain of the death of a loved one, or the pain of sickness, or, you, you know, a, a, a terminal illness, and all these sorts of terrible things that can happen on families and on people. You're not the first one, and you won't be the last. And just because things happen doesn't mean that God isn't still there, that God isn't still in control. And so they're sitting in this prison, and then all of a sudden an angel comes, and it says, taking them out. So the, so, so the Lord opened the gates of the prison and took them out. Now remember what happens the next morning. The guards are still standing there by the, by the jail and standing guard. So they don't see this. So when the doors open, these guys are coming out of the jail. And as they're coming out, there's still guards there. And the guards are, are oblivious to this. But are you sure he's not going to turn around and go, hey, and just stab you with his sword, which is what he's supposed to do? I mean, how do you know what's going to happen? This sounds like, wow, you know, this is really great. You know, the angel just delivered us. But remember, they, the gates are opening and the guards don't see it. But there's guards there. And maybe, maybe after one second, the angel's going to leave us and it's going to be like, psych. And you're left there in front of the guard. You don't know. Life is full of all sorts of surprises. This is not an easy experience. For us, it seems like, oh, how dramatic, how wonderful. This is not easy. And life, the things that we go through, is not easy. Are not easy. And so, they're, they're being let out. And then it says, then the angel takes them out and he says to them, go, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. This is exactly what they were doing before. They were standing and speaking in the temple. That's what got them put in jail. And the angel tells them to go right back doing it. God, don't you understand that I shared with that person and they got all offended? Now what? Maybe I, sh I, I just shouldn't share with people. Because I never would have brought this offense, you, you know, if, if I wasn't sharing. So I think I'll never share. And God says, go right back there. Look what the angel does. He tells them to go right back there. Right back to the same place. I mean, this is, this is really silly. Okay, at least Paul, you know, would get delivered and, you know, God would move him to another city. And it would be a while before he'd come back. Well, sometimes he'd, he'd come marching right back, back in. But this is what he did with them. He told them to go right back to the same place they were when they got arrested. You know, so often the things of God just don't make sense to us. They don't make sense. It's hard to understand the way God works, the way God moves. But if we remain faithful to the Lord, He is faithful to us. He really is faithful. 
he remains faithful. And then he says to them to go and speak, to teach the whole message of this life. Don't hold anything back. Teach the whole message of this life. You know, about, uh, about two months ago, I heard that there was this, this fairly famous guy with this terminal illness. And I had known the guy, I once had lunch with him before, but I didn't know him well. And he wasn't a Christian, and he had, and, and from what people told me, he had nothing to do with Christianity. But his, his uh, daughter-in-law called me. He, she said, Jim, you're one of the few scientists that he really listens to. Would you talk to him? Now, this guy is a very famous guy. And, uh, uh, and so I went to this other city, and I said, I'd, I'd like, I, I called him up. I said, I, I really need to talk with you. And he didn't know what the topic was. He said, sure. I said, I'll, I'll, I'll come there where you are. And so I went to this other city. I flew in and I met with him. And uh, uh, I told him everything that I could in 20 minutes about Jesus. About how he died for his people. About his life. About what he did in my own life. And he listened for about 20 minutes. And after about 20 minutes, he quite cordially said, um, I hear what you say. I can't believe it. And we, we talked for about another 20 minutes. He shared a bit and I shared a bit. And, and this man just died about a week ago. And, um, uh, you know, I did what I could do. It was not easy. My mouth was dry. I mean, this is quite a famous guy. And, I, and my mouth was dry and everything. And he didn't know that I knew he was terminally sick. His, his daughter-in-law had just shared that with me. These things are not easy. But we are called to do these very things. He said, go and share the entire message of this life. Don't hold anything back. This is what we are called to. You know, it could be. God took the prophet Jeremiah and he said, if I don't speak this word, God holds me accountable. God says, their blood is on your hands if you don't speak this word. It may be that other people's blood will be on my hands if I don't share with them this word of life. This is the pattern in Scripture. We are called to speak. There are people that you can share with that I cannot. I have no relationship with them. I will never meet them. And that you are called to speak with them. You say, well, this is kind of hard. I'm not an apostle. You don't have to be an apostle to talk about what God has done in your life. And if God has done nothing, then get saved. Get saved. And so you can have something done in your life to talk about. There is something that God has called us to. And it may well be that these people, like it it says in Sodom and Gomorrah, it says, Sodom and Gomorrah will accuse this nation, Jesus said. They will cry out and they will say, you had this chance and you never repented. But Sodom and Gomorrah w- would have repented if, if they saw. Nineveh would cry out. Sodom and Gomorrah would cry out. Why does Jesus give examples like this? It may well be that there will be people shouting from on the other side of the abyss, just like, just like there was clear communication between the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man being in one side of the chasm, Lazarus being in the bosom of Abraham, there was clear communication. 
And they were talking back and forth. Abraham with Lazarus talking to the rich man. It may well be that we are accused. Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you speak it up? You knew this and you didn't tell me. And you say, well, you're putting something on me that isn't there in Scripture. I'm not sure it's not there. We see this. Jesus said, said that, that uh, uh, um, Sodom and Gomorrah will cry out in accusation against the nation of Israel. Well, how can they do that? Sodom and Gomorrah were gone long ago. Well, there are people there, Jesus is saying, that are there that are going to see you guys and they're going to cry out, why didn't you accept this? There are people that we are obliged to share with the whole message of this life. The whole message of this life. And it isn't easy. That means in the morning, I have to get myself prayed up and ready to go. That I can't just say, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm not a pastor. I mean, this is Landrum's job. This is Patterson's job. This is not my job. I'm not a pastor. No, this is very much my job. This is my role. This is, in fact, more important to me, I think, in God's eyes, than my role as a chemist. I have been called to speak all the message of this life and to demonstrate this. This is my call. You have a similar call. You have a similar call. And if you keep it in, may your bones burn within you. So that's kind of hard. That's what, that, that, that's what the prophet said. My bones burn within me if I don't speak your word. May your bones burn within you if you don't speak all the message of this life. If you're a believer, this is what you're called to. You can't just sit on your butt and ask other people to do this. It is you. It is me. I have been called for this. This is what God has called us to. It is to speak the whole message of this life. And we live in this society where persecution is kindergarten. It is absolute kindergarten in comparison to what scriptural persecution is. I have never been persecuted. Yeah, some people have said some things about me, but I've never been persecuted. Never have I shed one drop of blood. People have said a few things, but that's not persecution. Persecution was much harder. I've never been thrown in jail for my witness. Never. We live in this, this society that just, you, you know, that, that treats us with such kid gloves and we get one finger on our face and we're offended and hurt. I mean, some of us need to be really beat up for our witness, and then we'll learn to take some punches. This is what the Scriptures have called him to, and he said, go and speak the whole message of this life. And upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. If you want to see the power of God in your life, it takes instant obedience. God speaks to your life to do something, you do it. God speaks into your life that you owe an apology to somebody. You can't keep putting that thing off. You've got to deal with that immediately. It is immediate obedience to the will of God. Because you know what happens? God speaks to us again to apologize. And you think that He'd speak it louder. No, He speaks it more softly. And He speaks it again. But it becomes continually more softly. And then after a while, we think it's gone away. It hasn't gone away. And once in a while, the the door gets kicked open again and he reminds us, but it's quiet. Because if we want to walk with God, it is continual acts of obedience. 
And that is the Christian life. It is continual acts of obedience to Him, to His Word, and to His call. And, and you know, so, sometimes I look at my schedule and I think, what am I doing? There's just all this time I'm devoting to go and speak to this individual that, that needs to hear. You know, and that individual, and it just busts up my day so much sometimes. But this is what God has called me to. And on the other side, He gives me this tremendous grace to make up for it. So that I, I end up accomplishing twice as much as my colleagues who do nothing. He gives back tremendous grace. God is the one who returns. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word, and I pray you drill it home to these young people. Father, that if there be a burning of conviction upon any of their hearts, Father, I pray that you would make that burn even hotter. Father, that there would be a conviction of not doing enough in the body of Christ, of walking by the temple and watching it degrade, of walking by the temple and watching it go, go into disrepair without lifting a finger, and just saying, oh, ho-hum, without speaking the whole message of this life, of being worried about not being accepted. Father, I pray that you would cause this word and this conviction to burn deep in their hearts and just bring your fire, oh God. Father, thank you for the seriousness of your word and the truth of it. Father, I thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.